Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in for what I think is an excellent chat between myself and Dr. Adam Radinsky. This episode is sponsored by Blue Buffalo, and in it, we discuss the approach to feline chronic enteropathy. If you're like me, when you get those kitties who seem to have a chronic GI disease, there's a brief, and maybe sometimes not so brief, moment of anxiety when trying to decide what the best approach should be. Is it biopsies? Is it steroids? Will one choice affect the other? Well, Dr. Radinsky is always great to talk to and, as usual, turned out to be the perfect resource for me to ask all of my burning clinical questions. I hope this podcast will help us all feel a little more confident in our treatment and diagnostic approach to cats with chronic enteropathy. Dr. Radinsky is an assistant professor in the Small Animal Internal Medicine Service at The Ohio State University Veterinary Medical Center. He provides the service with a specialized interest, clinical perspective, and clinically applicable research in gastroenterology, pancreatology, and hepatology. Dr. Radinsky earned his DVM degree from The Ohio State University, completing a small animal rotating internship at Purdue University, and then a combined residency in internal medicine and master's degree at The Ohio State University. He's now on faculty at Ohio State as a staff internist and research scientist after completing his postdoctoral fellowships in mucosal immunology and microbial pathogenesis. His current clinical and research interests include gastrointestinal endocrinology, chronic enteropathies, pancreatic and hepatic disease, mucosal immunology, and the intestinal microbiome as it relates to small animal gastrointestinal, metabolic and endocrine disease pathophysiology and treatment. He's received several teaching awards and hospital service awards, and despite his extensive expertise and training, he is incredibly down-to-earth and full of practical and easily applicable information. Let's go ahead and get into our episode. So I'm back again with Dr. Adam Radinsky. Adam, you've been on the podcast before. It's always great to talk to you. So thank you again for joining me today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be back and looking forward to it. Yes, me too. And the last time we really focused a lot on dogs and chronic enteropathy. So we're going to talk a little bit about cats today, specifically kind of feline enteropathies. What kind of clinical signs would we be looking for in a cat with a chronic enteropathy? All right. Perfect. A good starter question. So I think the interesting thing about cats is, right, we still have all of the chronic enteropathies or chronic gastrointestinal diseases we have to deal with in other species, but cats always add that little bit of extra mystery to the equation. So, you know, for sure, anytime we see a cat that has chronic vomiting, chronic diarrhea, chronic weight loss, chronic changes in appetite, those are going to be strong indicators, obviously not exclusively chronic enteropathy clinical signs that are pathognomonic, but strong indicators that it has to be high on our list of differentials, particularly considering the prevalence of them. But one of the things that I also find really interesting about this on the cat side is like, do you have cats at home? I don't. My husband's allergic. My, okay. my daughters would go crazy if I brought a cat home. They keep asking. But one of my favorite things to ask people, and I, I, I sympathize, I, I have two at my house, but like this day and age when we have litter robots and other kinds of like self-cleaning things, we've kind of detached ourselves from bowel movement changes and what's actually happening in the litter box in certain situations. So I think the other side of looking at clinical signs and feline chronic enteropathy is really paying attention to what's going on with your cat 
in its litter box, right? Are you noticing changes in how often they're going to the bathroom? Are they having changes in the consistency and firmness and those sorts of things of their bowel movements? Because all of those are really good clinical indicators for us as clinicians, right? But owners may not really mention that to us because if a robot is scooping my litter box, I may not notice something until it's either vomit on my floor or weight loss that I can feel tangibly when I'm petting my cat. So it's that large range from the classic to those subtle signs at home. So in addition to cats just being super stoic and not telling us that they're sick until they, until something's really wrong. Now we've also incorporated these conveniences, understandably so into our routines that might make it even harder to see this coming. Exactly. Yeah. So when we have a patient who we do identify these clinical signs with, finally, we say, okay, there is weight loss. There are changes in frequency or consistency of bowel movements. What types of diseases are we considering in these guys? When I'm approaching a case like that, my first goal is always to try to decide whether I'm dealing with a true chronic enteropathy and something gastrointestinal specific or something that's non-gastrointestinal, right? So the power of our minimum database in a T4 is immensely helpful in those situations because largely if I have those tests that are normal and I've been able to rule out major organ disease, hyperthyroidism, then I can pretty confidently start moving into the gastrointestinal realm. So adding those together really pushes me forward in my diagnostic pursuit. And once I get into the chronic enteropathy realm and rule out many of my other infectious differentials and atypical differentials like exocrine pancreatic insufficiency in cats, what we're really dealing with is the classic chronic gastrointestinal diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, small cell lymphoma, and large cell lymphoma. And those three comprise quite a few of our non-infectious chronic enteropathies. Right. So sure. Are there other ones out there like eosinophilic sclerosing fibroplasia and, and stuff like that? Yes. But are we seeing those regularly? No. Right. So practically speaking, if we can rule out infectious diseases and we can rule out our systemic diseases, odds are most likely we're dealing with some sort of chronic enteropathy like inflammatory bowel disease, small cell lymphoma, and in rare instances, a more aggressive type of round cell tumor like large cell lymphoma. Now I'm having to fight the urge to start asking about all the individual diseases and their, their presentations and take us down a real <laughs> rabbit hole. And, and I want to talk about distinguishing those diseases because I know for myself, when I get to that point where I feel like I've ruled out infectious type of diseases and I'm down to this kind of IBD lymphoma type of concern, I always just have this moment of pause. Cause I'm like, where do I go from here? Do I recommend biopsies? Do I start this cat on steroids? If I do start them on steroids, how long can I keep them on there? And, and it's just kind of, I, I always have to kind of go back to the books on that one and go, okay, how am I going to approach this case? Do you have any like general guidelines for us as far as that general approach biopsies, no biopsies. And then I, you know, I suppose steroids as well. And I, I think that's really rightfully placed kind of concern because it is one of probably the most confusing or pause taking moments in a cat's gastrointestinal workup, especially because some of the literature that I'll highlight here, that's kind of changed how we look at these things. So I give a short answer and a long answer when I get asked questions like this. The short answer is knowledge is power. 
right? So if I know what's going on, that provides me a lot of information and I can be more confident in what I'm treating. So for that purpose, though, when is that most impactful to me as a clinician? It's when I diagnose something less common, right? So large cell lymphoma that has a specific treatment protocol that's going to be very different or that sclerosing fibroplasia disease that's going to be treated very different, or an intestinal mass, right? Things that require a distinct deviation from chronic neuropathy management are all going to be those diseases where that biopsy is super helpful to me. That being said, if you compare that back to how often we see those, it's a minority of our cases. Because once you have the systemic diseases and the infectious disease ruled out, it's probably less than 5% of our cases, if that, are actually going to be in that other category. So the other, let's say, 95% of the time, roughly, as a general estimate, you're dealing with inflammatory bowel disease and small cell lymphoma, which functionally are very hard to tell apart on biopsy, even with advanced testing. And are really treated the same with similar prognoses. So when I talk about putting biopsies into that clinical context, if you're an owner that has a ton of resources and has to know, certainly let's biopsy. But practically in most cats, in most of those cases, we're probably going to be okay flying blind if we have to. And more importantly, we should feel comfortable trying a lot of empirical therapies because these are most likely what's been going on. So knowing that a lot of these cases are IBD and small cell lymphoma, what are the significance of our findings if we do go to biopsy? Yeah, that's where some of the trickiness comes in, in terms of double time confusion there, because biopsies alone can be really hard to interpret. And there was a really cool study that was put out by the group at Texas that looked at biopsy of healthy cats. And one of the big takeaways from this was there was a substantial portion of healthy cats with no underlying gastrointestinal disease that were biopsied and either had biopsies consistent with inflammatory bowel disease or in rare cases, small cell lymphoma. And what was so remarkable about that is they followed these cats for variable periods of time and they didn't, most of them did not develop gastrointestinal disease after that. So what that tells me is if I just randomly biopsy an animal, there may be inflammation there, or they may be concerning findings. So it's really the biopsy paired with the clinical picture that's super useful to me, right? So you only want to biopsy those animals where you're suspecting disease, and then use that for confirmation. But once again, going back to those diseases and the different prevalences, when I look at that, I think, well, it's probably not going to change how I manage this cat if it's inflammatory bowel disease or small cell lymphoma the power in that biopsy is still in whether I found or ruled out one of those other random diseases. So it's just like any test we would run. We treat the patient, not the number. Exactly. That is the key, key concept with these cats. What if we have a cat where biopsy is not an option? The owners turn it down. I mean, we know that we're okay to treat empirically, but what kind of approach should we take? Yeah. So I, I consider that AKA the real world, right? Because like e even in an academic practice with a lot of tertiary referral cases, we have a lot of clients that just don't want to do biopsies due to cost or invasiveness or, or what have you. So I think that's a very real thing we're all encountering if you're seeing cats in this situation. So what I always come back to is in that situation, 
I know what diseases are most likely, and I might as well treat for those, particularly with therapies that are very safe for the patient and have a high efficaciousness. So the number one thing I think of in those situations would be dietary therapy. If you take chronic enteropathy cats and estimate the percent that are going to respond to dietary therapy as an example, you're usually in most studies around 50 to 60% of cats will respond with that alone. So the animals need to eat and we can get them a good diet that's balanced and, and meets all their nutritional goals. And it has a 50-50 shot, let's say, of treating the disease. That's a no-brainer for me. You might as well try that. And then depending on what level of additional information I have, I will stretch into probiotics or immunomodulatories or other types of medications to manage their clinical signs. And remembering that you can treat any animal empirically. It's really just about having a conversation with the owner about here's the pros and cons, right? I can use a steroid if I have complications. We just need to understand that they could exist if we are flying blind, if you will, or don't have all of our diagnostic information. And when you say immunomodulatories, are you referring primarily to steroids there? Are there other drugs you're lumping into that category? Yeah. Steroids are my bread and butter for chronic enteropathy cats, right? So our classic prednisolone or budesonide are the two that I typically go for. In terms of my secondary therapies or that second line of agents that I roll out is typically alkylating agents. So think chlorambucil and the different dosing protocols available for that. And then sometimes I do use cyclosporin, mycophenolate, and those types of other immunosuppressants, but typically more in a tertiary kind of setting after prednisolone and chlorambucil. And a couple other just like clarifying points on treatment options. What about the use of antibiotics in these guys? Is there a place for antibiotics? Yeah. So antibiotics historically were a really big part of how we manage chronic neuropathies, right? There is probably not any single person listening to this podcast that hasn't doled out some metronidazole or Tylen powder in their career. But as we learn more about that microbial ecosystem, there's a couple things that we've kind of reflected back on in terms of antibiotic use for chronic neuropathy management. First is those bugs in our gut are our friends. They are a really intricate ecosystem, and we want to protect them. And we know there's multiple studies out now showing the both short-term and long-term effects on the gut flora from antimicrobials. Second, in at least other species, we know most animals that respond to antibiotics have worse long-term prognoses in terms of relapse rate or ultimately requiring additional therapies down the road. So antibiotics have really fallen away in terms of a focus for chronic neuropathy treatment, and it's been replaced with probiotics or other microbiome-based therapies, right? So one of the hot topics that's coming out and we'll all continue to hear more and more about would be things like fecal transplants and stuff that are kind of on the cutting edge of where a lot of new work is being done. So that kind of answered my next question, which was about probiotics. It sounds like we've moved away from that kill the bugs therapy into add more bugs, lots more yeah. bugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Keep that happy, healthy gut family thriving. And I'm a big fan of probiotics, but with the caveat that probiotics are not really a soul therapy, meaning a lot of different products are out there and can make a really good adjunctive treatment 
for animals, as long as we're using products that we know, products where the contents are consistent and that are as much as possible data-driven. Absolutely. So let's expand on dietary therapy a little bit. You mentioned that 50 to 60% will respond to dietary therapy alone. What kind of diets are we reaching for in these guys? I'm glad you asked. This is like, this is my favorite area because it's a focus of a lot of my research and it's so wonderful to basically fix a problem just with a diet. And if you or I had gastrointestinal disease and my gastroenterologist was like, here, just eat this one diet for the rest of your life. I'd be like, I'll take the GI disease. I'm not Mm -hmm. giving up the restaurant. Right. But we have control over that variable and the impact of diet on our pets, gastrointestinal health cannot really be understated. And I think that's why we see these massive response rates for cats and dogs when we look at their chronic enteropathies. So like I said, over half of cats are going to respond to diet. And there's another few unique things about these chronic enteropathy diets. So traditionally, we think of your hydrolyzed diets that are out there, like HF and other hydrolyzed forms, HA and HP, all of those types of diets are your classic hydrolysis process diets. And those are really good diets. They're easily digestible on average, and also meet a lot of those kind of hypoallergenic criteria that we look for in a GI diet. We also use novel protein diets, right? The ones where based on our diet history, we pick something very consistent and unique for that animal. And now we've got all kinds of varieties, right? Like even alligator now can be fed in these diet options. So those have traditionally been the mainstay and the focus. And we think of that for both dogs and like in our topic today, cats. But one of the unique things about cats is they also respond pretty much similarly to the best as we can determine to easily digestible diets. And those are our classic acute GI diets, but in cats can also be used in a chronic setting. And what I really like about that is one, it's a whole new category of diets that it opens up for us to use in these patients, but also a whole new set of nutritional profiles, right? So we have more options, especially for those animals with comorbidities and stuff where we're looking for that perfect diet in certain situations. And I'll put the caveat there that like, can I tell you, hey, head to head, this diet's going to be better than this diet? No, but looking at the studies individually amongst those diet types, they're fairly comparable in terms of response rates. And that's, like I said, one of the big differences because those easily adjustable diets, although they work for some dogs, they don't work for as many as we see in our cat patients. Well, and opening that door too, I mean, the GI diets are a lot of the times what we have in the clinic that we can just hand them right there if they're having a flare up or, or some acute GI symptoms. Exactly. We have them. They are often maybe a little bit easier accessible in terms of online as well. They are sometimes a little bit cheaper. So there's lots of benefits for them as well as for underweight patients. They also tend to be a little more calorically dense. So lots of things that can come into play when we're choosing those. Absolutely. Absolutely. With the novel protein diet, do we have a concern that eventually that might stop working and we might need a new novel protein diet or are those usually good long-term options as well? Yeah. So as far as we know, all three of those are good long-term options, right? And 
when it comes to choosing diets and why even something like a gastrointestinal diet would work, most animals aren't actually food allergic right? That's a small portion of animals that have a true allergy. Most animals just have a food intolerance. And that's why with cats, when I put them on one of these diets, we actually see such robust responses, right? Like a cat, you could switch them over to NP and you might see them stop vomiting in two days, or you might see their diarrhea resolve in three or four days. Remarkably fast response times. So our average diet trial is only about two weeks long, and we get those quick responses. And in the animals that have been held long-term on the diets, some do have relapses, but that's true of any disease. The majority of animals, if you keep them on their diet, will actually do really well and should be stable. And in my practice, most of the animals that do have those relapses, it's usually due to some sort of indiscretion by the animal in terms of food on the counter or, hey, we ran out of the food and we need to switch or something like that. So one of these days we'll, we'll have to dive deeper into pancreatic disease in cats like EPI and chronic pancreatitis and then food allergies versus food intolerance. Yes, we could chat for hours about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but in the interest of not keeping everybody here for hours, we'll save that discussion for another day. But I do want to talk a little bit more about steroids because, of course, no talk about chronic enteropathy would be complete without just a little bit deeper dive into steroids. Can, can I put you on the spot a little bit here? Sure. You talked about kind of your first and second line drugs, but what dose, how long, how are we tapering these drugs? Yeah, all great and practical questions, right? So typically, if I'm using steroids as my first line, I'm going to be going down the route of prednisolone or budesonide as my two targets, right? Injectables and those sorts of things are really only used for those occasional cats where you literally cannot medicate them any other way. Oh, not Depomedrol for everybody. <laughs> exactly. So with the PRET route, I typically like starting around five milligrams per cat or roughly a one mg per kg cat dose. And I think I tend to get a pretty robust response without having to go higher than that and see what kind of clinical response. Similarly, within about two weeks, I should have maximal effect and I can make my assessment of whether that dose was appropriate or not. With budesonide, I'm starting somewhere between a half milligram per cat to one milligram per cat. How I choose that, once again, is based on the severity of that individual animal. And same thing, I'm looking for response in the first two weeks. Now, in terms of which of those I would choose, once again, it's that continuum of severity. A cat that maybe is vomiting once a week, otherwise BAR, otherwise eating, I'm probably going to skew towards budesonide because I like the fact that there's less systemic absorption, there's less systemic side effects, and I think I can get away with that. Whereas the more severe the animal is, the more inappetent the animal is, the more I like some of those PRED side effects. I like the appetite induction and, and stuff that's beneficial there. And I'll try to induce them with a more systemic steroid. Keeping in mind that some cats will respond to one and not the other and vice versa. So you have to have some flexibility in what you're, what you're comfortable with. Once I get them going on that, my taper is really dictated by how the animal does, right? So if the animal's main problem was a vomiting cat, for example, 
Well, I usually can assess whether that's responded really quickly. If that cat's main problem is weight loss, I may need more time to do that, right? So my initial trial period is going to be consistent on the rapidity that I think the clinical science can change, right? So things that are very overt, like vomiting and diarrhea, I can watch those, observe those, and make an assessment. Things that are a little more nebulous, like weight loss, I need longer periods of time, in my opinion, to feel more comfortable with that. But once I get them through that chronic stable period, then I do rough 20 to 25% reductions down to the lowest controllable dose. And the nice part is a lot of these patients, even if I started them on a steroid, for example, I can get them off completely if I'm using a diet and other therapies in the background. So an example of that would be, let's say you have two cats come into you, one is eating and one is not. Well, that cat that's not eating, that diet trial is not going to go very well, right? So in those, yeah, maybe I'm going to jump to steroids, but I'm actually going to start that diet alongside it because I think it'll improve my tapering ability over time. And then to kind of round that question out, the frequency at which I taper is once again based on the animal signs. So I can taper a little bit quicker if they're a vomiter or a diarrhea cat because I can see that quicker. If weight loss is their main issue, I'm probably going to slow that down a little bit to make sure nothing's kind of ticking away slowly in the background. And I want to jump back to the biopsies one more time. Mm-hmm. What about steroids and biopsies? You know, what if we, what if we have a cat who is showing pretty severe symptoms, these overt symptoms, vomiting, diarrhea, and the owner does want a biopsy, but we really want to get these clinical signs under control quickly. Are we concerned about the steroids affecting our ability to get a diagnosis? Yeah. So I think it it has to be something that we're cognizant of for sure. My kind of rules of thumb, and we don't really have good data to support this. So this is my opinion here, but my rules of thumb there is if you're still having active disease, you probably still have active findings. So like starting an animal on a steroid doesn't preclude my ability to then go for a biopsy. So once again, you said it perfectly earlier patient first, right? If I need to get that patient on something to stabilize them, to get them comfortable, I think that's totally reasonable. And we still can biopsy them down the line. Now, as far as the exact effects of that on the biopsy, that's where it gets a little bit more of a gray zone. But most of the cases that I've seen where I think that might be an effect is the differentiation of inflammatory bowel disease versus small cell lymphoma, which like we talked about in the beginning, isn't honestly the most pertinent to me as a clinician, because I'm going to treat those similarly based on the signs. So most of the time I'd say, treat your patient. And if it's what the animal needs, I think you have good justification to do it. And then we can interpret the biopsies on the back end. That was a really helpful answer. I felt like it was, it was really straightforward and helpful in a clinical sense of you're looking at the patient. What do you do in the moment? Yeah. Happy to. And just, just one more clarifying question. I keep putting you on the spot here, but am I hearing you correctly? Just to, because I have this question, so I think maybe others might, am I hearing you correctly that with our biopsies, the overwhelming majority of the cases we're going to see are these small cell lymphoma and IBD cases. We're doing these biopsies, not necessarily to distinguish between those two, because we're going to treat them very similarly. We're trying to rule out that 5% that we talked about the large cell lymphoma, the 
eosinophilic scler- what did you call it eosinophilic sclerosing fibroplasia, fibroplasia. I, that's yeah. a disease i didn't even know existed <laughs> <laughs> So we're kind of biopsying to rule out the zebras here. Exactly. Because when you look at these individual patients, like I always try to think before I ask an owner to put that sort of financial investment and put that animal through that procedure, I want to make sure I'm maximizing something that's going to change this animal's care for the better. So if I have a cat, like you said, that is going to be treated the same in these two groups, I'm not really... Like, yeah, from a curiosity standpoint, I love to know what whether the pathologist thinks it's inflammatory bowel disease or small cell lymphoma, but the responsiveness and treatments are very similar. So where it impacts us the most is where our treatment becomes very different. And like you said, that's a really small percentage of our overall cases, particularly if you have a lot of diagnostics pre-biopsy to hone you in even better, right? The more we rule out, the more likely it is that we have a high prevalence of inflammatory bowel disease, small cell lymphoma, and a lower prevalence of these others. Because like, if you look at large cell lymphoma or eosinophilic sclerosing fibroplasia or those sorts of things, there's typically mass lesions or lymphadenopathy or some other abnormality if you have the luxury of abdominal imaging that can pick those up. Sure. Which theoretically, if you're biopsying, you have some sort of abdominal imaging. So that makes sense that it kind of narrow it down for you. Exactly. Well, Dr. Rodinsky, once again, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast. You're always full of, of just practical to the point information that is so helpful. So thank you for joining me. Of course it was great. Any final thoughts you want to share with us? I would just say, enjoy your diarrhea cases. They're the best part of your day. Well, you know, after, after these podcasts that you and I have done together, I'm feeling much more confident in those diarrhea cases. So they're becoming not nearly as stressful a part of my day. Excellent. That's the goal. All right, guys, I hope this podcast gives you confidence in treating these diarrhea cases and in talking with owners about treatment and diagnostic options. A huge thank you to Dr. Radinsky for joining me and to Blue Buffalo for sponsoring this episode. For more from Dr. Radinsky, check out our episode on dietary therapy for chronic enteropathies recorded at VMX 2021. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.